Welcome to Teach It Talks, the podcast where teachers from all disciplines come together to share their experiences and insights on what works in the classroom. I'm your host, Joe Dale, and I'm excited to bring you these bite-sized CPD episodes for your listening pleasure. Join us as we explore the latest teaching strategies and practices and hear from teachers who are making a difference in their students' lives. Today's guest is Helen Myers. Helen Myers is chair of the London branch of AWL, the Association for Language Learning, a former president of AWL and currently an invited trustee on the AWL Management Board. Through her work at the Ashcombe School and AWL, she has helped many teachers across the country in the use of technology in the teaching of languages and has provided constant support to language teachers through moderating forums and resource websites, as well as running webinars, especially the technology and language teaching series known as TILT. She combines senior management experience and a national perspective with the realities of teaching across the age and ability range, including recent experience of teaching A-level and GCSE exam classes. Her voluntary work was recognised in 2017 with the award of an MBE, and last year she was nominated as an officier des parents académiques. In this podcast interview, we discuss the changes coming to the new GCSE exam in modern languages. Helen does a great job in analysing and summarising the documents relating to GCSE provided by the Department for Education, Ofqual, the non-ministerial government department that regulates qualifications, exams and tests, and the exam boards themselves. Whether you're a language teacher or simply interested in the future of language education in England, you won't want to miss this informative discussion. So let's get started and find out more about what we can expect from the new GCSE Modern Languages exam. So hi, Helen. Thanks ever so much for agreeing to appear on the uh, on the podcast. I'm really delighted that you're here. And of course, we're going to be talking about the new GCSE, which I know you're incredibly well versed in. So maybe for listeners um, who aren't maybe aware of all the changes that have happened, can you just um, bring us up to speed and tell us where are we now with the GCSE reforms? It's a pleasure to be here with you, Joe. Where are we at? Well, the exam boards have already submitted their draft specifications and the sample assessment materials known as SAMs. They've done that just for French. And at the moment, they're waiting to see whether or not those have been uh, accepted by Ofqual. So they're hoping that they will be returned by April 2023. And after that has been approved, then they can go ahead and submit the German and the Spanish GCSEs. Fantastic. So could you maybe tell listeners how we sort of we, how we got to this point, if that's okay? Because I think it's important to look at the the various important uh, moments that have come up to this point because we have a GCSE at the moment, but the new GCSE, obviously there's quite a departure, isn't there? Can you give us a, a synopsis of what's been happening in recent years? Well, languages was treated just as other subject areas and had a new GCSE, which was first taught in 2016, first tested in 2018. While other subjects are carrying on with that specification, the Department for Education has decided that it should be changed for languages. So this is only happening to languages and they are responsible for deciding what the subject content is. So that's the DfE. They've responded to the National Pedagogy Review, which advised this change. So they got a small group of people together to make recommendations and those were published in March 2021. So that's when we knew what the proposals were. They then gave us two months as a period of consultation a period by the way when we were quite busy because we were getting things sorted out for covid and the speaking endorsement but by january 2022 the final new subject content 
was published. And that's not the end of it, because afterwards then Ofqual, who were responsible particularly for the exams and for setting standards, they then consulted on the subject conditions and the guidelines which would accompany that subject content. Yeah, I remember well at the, at the time people were saying they weren't very happy about the shortness of the consultation period and also the fact that um, it wasn't really a good time as well. They'd been through all the demands of COVID and what have you, and um, it wasn't the best time. But my understanding was there were some changes in the consultation as a result of what um, the language teacher community said about what they wanted to be changed. Can you maybe talk us through what those changes were? That'd be great. Yes. And first of all, just to say, yes, it wasn't very good timing, but people were brilliant. They really were. People attended webinars. They wrote their answers to the consultation. So I really think a great thank you to people for doing that. And it did make a difference. And that's where sometimes you think, okay, we weren't happy about this, the timing. But yes, there were some minor changes which were made. Actually, I say minor changes. Actually, they were quite significant. You know, for example, people had been saying there doesn't seem to be an opportunity for a genuine conversation. It looks as if it has to be just defined by the words which are in the specification. So that was changed. So there were changes, which was good. That's great. So maybe should we go back to um, what are the key differences between the current GCSE and the new GCSE, just to clarify to listeners? Yes. Well, there's quite a lot which is the same, but there are nine significant differences. Firstly, that the vocabulary and grammar must be defined. The DFE subject content doesn't any longer define themes or topics, but the idea is that with defined vocabulary, that can be applied to themes and topics. And within that also, another thing which has to be defined are the sound spelling correspondences, which students have to know. So that's something which, you know, it's very, very important first difference. Another difference is that all the language has to be known both receptively and productively. So for a long time now, we've had a situation where there are some structures, particularly for grammar, some structures which for foundation level, you would expect someone to understand, but you wouldn't expect them to produce. And often those structures are ones which then have to be produced at higher level. So that's something which has changed. There's also within the subject content document, there are rules about how it is to be tested. That's normally something that's down to Ofqual to do or the exam boards to say, okay, this is what we want them to be able to do. Let's work out how to test it. But actually, it's the DFE which says these are the speaking tests which must be, be administered. A big difference, which I think I have to say, I think this was quite a popular one. Well, at least I thought it was really good, <laughs> is that the questions now must be in English when testing comprehension. You know, so we had this stupid situation before where you were having to test whether or not someone understood written French, for example, through a question written in French. And sometimes, even worse, you had to write the answer in French. So that really was not a very popular thing. So that's that went down well. Another thing is that you have to have dictation now. So that's a new thing. The criteria for assessing translation Whereas before it required you to be very accurate, now the stress is that it should just be appropriate and sufficient translation. So there's no mention of accuracy. I'm nearly at the end. The next one is the requirement to infer meaning. So in the past, that was really taken as being from what someone was saying, can you infer what their attitude is, what their approach is? Whereas it now, it really means that you have to infer meaning from what you've read. Because, by the way, there shouldn't be any inference required for listening. 
And then the last thing is that all three tasks for speaking are specified, and that includes a new one of reading aloud. And for the role play and everything else, the idea is that everything should be unambiguous. The instruction should be very clear, so no one's left in any doubt as to what they have to do. That's fantastic. So maybe if we break down those different elements that you just referred to in a little bit more detail, if that's okay, I think that would be useful. So talking about vocabulary to start off with, what are the differences between the current GCSE and the new GCSE in relation to expectations of how vocabulary is taught? Hmm. Well, I think quite a lot of people might not realise this. With the current specification, the exam boards are not required to give any words at all. That was their choice to give vocabulary. They were told, though, that if they were to have vocabulary lists, then a certain proportion of the words in the final assessment should not be on those lists. So that's really just to clear up any misunderstanding about that. The situation now is that the words should be defined from the outset. Personally, I'm not too upset about the fact that we have a defined word list The thing, though, which has concerned people, and a lot of people put their signature to this to say they were unhappy about it, is that at least 85% of those words must be from a corpus of language which is deemed to represent the most frequent words within the language. And in practice, for French, for example, which is the one that's been submitted at the moment, all the exam boards have used the same one, uh, which is the Rutledge Frequency Dictionary. That was published in 2009. So you can probably guess why some people are not necessarily happy, particularly because you, Joe, are really up on technology. I mean, there are quite a few words, aren't there, which have come into the language, which may not have been around when they were gathering the words for 2009. Yeah, definitely. I think this has been really quite controversial or a thorny issue or the fact that um, I believe there's no other system in the world that um, has this sort of defined list and it's expected to teach in that way. Any more thoughts about that, about people's concerns maybe around having to work on a defined list and having to, let's say, create activities that could sound artificial because it's they're just trying to keep the words that are on the list and not use any other words? I think that when it comes to the exam, we will probably put together texts which will test using just the words that they're likely to get in the exam. But the reality is, as teachers who have got children in front of us, we want them to enjoy our lessons. We want to be able to explore areas that they like. We also want them to have enough language to be able to cope with the world as it really is when they go on a French exchange, when they visit France. And we'd like some people to be able to do A-level French. So I think that for most teachers, we'll carry on with what we know is good for our students, just because a certain name of a pet does not feature in the the, uh, list. We're not going to say, no, we're not going to teach you that word just because there might not be certain sports. And this is where, when you said earlier on about how things changed according to the consultation, this was a good thing in that one of the changes was that whereas before the idea was that all language needed and all language used would be from that list. One of the changes is now to say exam boards must accept words which are not on that list as being credit worthy. So that when you're having discussions in the exam about something which is personal to the student, they're not going to be expected only to use the words which are there. It sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? But that was quite a breakthrough, I feel. Of course, when it comes to preparing people for the experience of the exam, we'll be wanting to put together texts which have words which they're going to encounter. 
But in the five years that we have leading up to that, I think that we can use any words we want, really. Yeah, I think that's really good to hear. I think it's uh, it's a common sense approach, which uh, makes sense. And I'm relieved to hear that. And also your, you know, your warm acknowledgement of... Um, of what teachers will be doing for five years. They won't just be focusing on the GCSE exam for five years. I think that would be a way of absolutely killing the enthusiasm that students would have towards uh, languages. Um, but of course, at the same time, we, we, we know that we have this exam at the end of the five years of study. So it's very important to prepare properly for that. But if a, a student wants to talk about its pet snake, fair enough, I think that's absolutely fine. <laughs> so moving on to grammar, I know that there's been a few changes around the approach to teaching grammar. Can you talk us through those, please? Well, the main change is that now all of the grammar has to be both receptively and productively known. But really, before, if you look at the current specification, we already do have a division between foundation and higher. There's already an expectation of what students should know or understand. So there's not much change there. When you look at it, there are a few little changes about whether or not you need to know the imperfect tense for one particular situation or another. I think the key difference is the way in which the exam board presents the grammar. So whereas before it was okay just to have the headings that we were always familiar with about nouns and verbs and adverbs, now it's in a lot more detail. It's being very specific about what is required. I actually think that's quite helpful sometimes to to know that. And I think also something which is is helpful is when you're told that they need to know irregular verbs those irregular verbs are defined. So it's quite helpful to have various clusters defined. I think that's going to help us quite a lot when we're putting together resources, when we're wanting to share resources for grammar. We'll all have the same sort of notion of what an irregular verb is. We've got some definition of different types of irregular verbs. So I think that can be quite helpful. And the the correspondence between the sound spelling links, that sort of front and centre, isn't it, with the new GCSE? I suppose people might think of it as being the most important thing because it's the most obvious difference from what went before. We've always had vocabulary, we've always had grammar, but this is a new thing to say that we're going to actually test understanding of the way in which a sound goes with a spelling. That's always happened. Of course, we've always taught people how to pronounce things. We know that that's a good way of memorising, is to be able to picture a word and know how it's said. But we haven't necessarily always tested that. So I think that's the difference here, is that it's actually going to be tested through reading aloud and through dictation. Yeah, lovely. So I think that's brilliant, um, Helen. I think that's really clarified some of the headlines, if you like, for the changes with the new GCSE. So that's looking at the the official DFE subject content. Maybe if we move on now to what Ofqual have uh, come out with, the Ofqual documentation, can you talk us through that and what they have advised for um, teachers teaching the new GCSE? Certainly. I think this is something which teachers don't always necessarily get very involved with because once the exam boards have come out with their specifications, that's what we look at. We don't necessarily look at why they've come out with what they've come up with. But I think it is important to know these things so that we know what the constraints are on the exam boards. Ofqual have come out with two documents, just as they have now. They have one which is about subject level conditions and requirements, so things exam boards must do. And then there's a separate document which is giving guidance, so really clarification as to how things can be interpreted, what the words mean. So the subject level conditions and requirements have things like the assessment objectives. So that's really spelled out. The difference there is that whereas it's very straightforward now, a 
of having four assessment objectives, equally weighted of listening, speaking, reading, writing. The new one has three assessment objectives and they mix the skills up rather than having this one assessment objective per skill. So that's a difference. There's no change to the tiering. We've still got a situation where people are entered either for foundation for everything or for hire for everything. The boards are told they have to explain their approach to covering vocabulary, grammar and sound spelling correspondence. And then they have actually got some requirements for the various elements of the exam. So, for example, for the speaking, acknowledging that there is another test now of this reading aloud, they have increased the preparation time. And this, again, actually was as a result of the consultation of people saying that's what they'd like. And then for the listening and reading, this is a new thing, that they have a required maximum of the number of words which can be included over the whole paper. But they don't have a requirement about the timing for the listening, which we had before. And then as the dictation is new, there's a minimum requirement for the number of words which should appear in it. That's a really nice overview, I think, of the main changes. What about the Ofqual subject level guidance document? Well, that was really needed. I have to say, I spent ages looking at the assessment objectives, really a long time trying to work out how are they going to match with all of the tasks and the skills which have to be tested. And I'm still not quite sure about it. So that was very helpful that the Ofqual well, it was necessary for Ofqual to be able to come up with this clarification, really to clear up, frankly, a bit of a muddle otherwise. One of the examples would be the assessment objective one, which says you should show understanding of or respond to what you hear through speaking and writing. Obviously, that's relating to being able to understand if you hear the target language, so the listening test. But if it says you have to show what you understand, what you hear through writing, it could be interpreted that it's through writing the target language, couldn't it? It's not making it clear. So it really did need to be clarified by Ofqual that when it says the word writing, it could be writing in English. And indeed, it has to be, since one of the rules is any comprehension should be tested through the medium of English. So that's to do with assessment objectives. Maybe if we talk now about the speaking, how has the guidance changed there? There's a key clarification there, and this was a result really of the consultation, that where there's an interaction with the learner, so for example, the discussion in the follow-up to the reading aloud and the follow-up to the visual stimulus, this can include talking about the learner's own experience relating to the theme. So this is really significant. It means that for the reading aloud exercise, the follow-up questions don't have to demonstrate comprehension of the text, and it can allow for questions which have a broader treatment of the theme of the passage. So pupils are not going to be disadvantaged if they haven't got direct experience of the specific content of the passage. I think that's really helpful to have that clarification. And similarly, the interaction after or connected to the picture it doesn't have to be limited to prescribed questions. An exam board could choose still to have prescribed questions, but they don't have to. And what about the writing, Helen? The guidance for the writing allows for a stimulus which can be visual or written in English. And those are probably the things you would expect because we're saying we want the task to be really, really clear and unambiguous. But one other thing that they're allowing is for the stimulus to be written in the assessed language, which could seem a bit of a surprise because, well, is that going to be really clear? The idea is that there is scope for an exam board to give a model of language, which then a student could adapt 
for their own use. And that's actually what one of the boards has done in its sample assessment material. It'll be interesting to see how that goes down. And what is the guidance around the uh, inferring of meaning? How are they going to test that? The guidance on how to assess that someone can infer the meaning of a word allows for that word either to be in the text itself or in a separate task. I'm assuming that exam boards ask for this clarification and they can probably explain what the implication is. But the outcome is when you look at the SAMs, two boards are setting a task where a word is within a text. And the question is to say, can you guess the English sense of that word? And you're given options. The other board, one board though, has a multi-choice question in French to test recognizing a synonym. Again, that's something where you might say, well, that's not really keeping within the spirit of testing comprehension through asking a question in the target language. Because you're, in a way, you're saying, here are some French words, can you find a synonym for it? But I expect they would argue that that is still showing inference, the fact that you can work out that that word equals another word. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. I suppose what um, teachers are worried about, that the exam might deliberately be putting traps in their way, if you like, and maybe inferences, that is something that they're, they're concerned about. What do you think? I think I am guilty of using the word trap a lot. I know that I've put together documents which say these are the awful games that examiners play. I think the longer I'm in this game, the more I realise actually you do need to have let's call them distractors. <laughs> you need something to be able to discriminate between the top and the bottom. It's the nature of the exam. It's an exam which is done for selection, isn't it? You're selecting people to be in different grades. That's the reality of it. And I suppose, yes, people can get concerned about things when it might seem a, as if it's unfair. But I think that's where, with this particular specification, where it's going to be very clear to the exam boards what they can expect people to infer and what they shouldn't ask them to infer, I think that's going to make it a little bit fairer, to be honest. Yeah, that's really clear. Thank you, Helen. And what about dictation? What's been the advice on dictation with the new GCSE? Already in the subject content, there are instructions about the dictation. So, for example, it does say that there should be some words which are not in the word list, presumably really that is the way of testing phonics. If, if we're totally honest, if you really want to test phonics, the student shouldn't know any of the words at all and be able to work it out. I'm very relieved that that's not the case. So that's within the subject of content. But in addition to the DFE subject content for dictation, the guidance allows for dictating an extract which is already being heard in the listening exam. Now, on this particular point, I confess I haven't noticed any of the boards using that allowance as a sample assessment material. They all seem to be standalone dictation, but perhaps that's something which will be developed. We might learn more when we see what the response of Ofqual is to what has been submitted. Yeah, absolutely. And what about um, the assessment objectives? What's been the guidance from Ofqual on those? Well, I said earlier on about the fact that they've had to clarify the wording of it to make it absolutely clear. They are complex, but they're guidance for the exam board. So to some extent, now we, when we have the sample assessment materials, we can just look at what's emerged rather than at the guidance itself. But that key clarification was, that I said, that the words written language and writing can be interpreted as written English and writing English. And that's a vital clarification to allow the comprehension to be tested in English and for tasks to be explained in English unambiguously. So now we've received all this lovely guidance from Ofqualum from the DfE, how would you say the exam boards have responded to uh, this guidance? 
Well, firstly, I'd say I think that the exam boards have done a really good job in coming up with their specifications and their sample materials, particularly since they were not really involved in the consultation very much. My understanding is that people were not demanding these changes, so they've had a lot on their plate and there are all these constraints. So I think they've done really well. I've looked at the specifications, I've looked at the exams. I've done a really detailed comparison, which if anyone's interested in, it's about 100 sides you could look at. And they're available as as links on my blog. But really, at this point, I would say, really wait until we see the final specifications and sample materials before you think about any changes that you're going to make, really. We don't know what the results are going to be. Wow, 100 pages. That's incredible, Helen. As always, I think um, the, the language teacher community should be very, well, are very grateful to all the work you've put in over the years and the support you've given. So maybe for those people that, that don't have time to read uh, the 100 page report, could you mention some of the, the key changes between the exam boards on uh, the new GCSE? Yeah, so without going into the actual detail of what they've come up with, I think it's always useful to think about, well, when you're doing the comparisons, what sort of things are you looking at? What areas could be different? So I've picked out some sort of things. Here are some examples of how there could be variations. Um, Certainly there are variations at the moment between the drafts. So, for example, they're free to allocate different weightings to the skills. So you'll find that some will have a heavier weighting for reading aloud than others. Some will have a heavier weighting for dictation than others. To be honest, the themes and the topics in the vocabulary have a lot of overlap because the requirement to keep to the high frequency vocabulary limits the scope. But some boards may be deliberately carrying on with what you've been used to. So you could look at that and think, well, if I particularly want to carry on with that topic, has that been highlighted as a topic? Quite a big difference at the moment is that two boards have gone for three written papers and one has combined reading and writing in one, which makes it a longer paper. As I said before, Ofqual is saying how many words should be the maximum number of words in a listening or a reading. But those can then be grouped, can't they, into different lengths of text. So that's something to look at, that some will perhaps have deliberately some shorter texts, others may go for longer texts. Then another variable which is allowed now is the number of times that something's heard on listening. So as it stands at the moment, one board has gone for listening to something three times rather than the normal twice before answering a question. And as now, the nature of the criteria can vary. And I think this is a big thing to look at comparing the boards as to are they criteria which means something to you? Are they things that you think you'll be able to train your students in? Some are very specific. Some are more holistic. So who knows? I don't know what the off are going to say about the submissions, but at the moment there's one board where, for example, for the dictation, it's very specific which words are being tested and there are marks allocated to specific words, whereas the other two have a much more holistic approach to the dictation. Another thing is the writing, which could have deliberately have familiar tasks, so tasks which they've been used to having. Or it could be that they're using this as a chance to bring in a new type of task, like the one I mentioned about having a reading text there as a stimulus for what you're doing. Some people might want that. Some people might find it a bit confusing. And a further thing is to look at what are the conditions for the speaking test, the way it's invigilated, what they can do in their preparation time. At the moment, as far as reading aloud, one board has got it so that they're not allowed to try it out at all. Another one says in the exam board, they're allowed to try it out sub-vocally. 
not quite sure what that is, but sub-vocally. And another one allows a little bit of time at the beginning of the exam where they can just say something out loud. So there are lots of different ways in which they could have a different approach at the moment. But really, watch this space. I think when it comes out, certainly I will update my 100-page document and then I would say perhaps it's a bit more worthwhile looking at. <laughs> Lovely. So you said about um, training the uh, students up that the teachers will have to do in preparation for the new GCSE. What advice would you give to teachers training their year sevens and year eights to get them ready? Well, Joe, you know, I'm perhaps a little bit of a rebel on this, but I do feel that you've got five years to prepare people for a GCSE. I'm very, very wary of saying, okay, because they're going to be doing this when they're age 16 in the May or whatever, therefore we've got to start changing everything we're doing now or give them this experience. I really would be a little bit wary about that. But of course, of course, we do work backwards. It's what we do. So, of course, it's sensible to look at what the exam is, work backwards and say, well, are there things there which we do want to bring earlier on into the syllabus? Now, I'll confess I am not a head of department, but what we did, um, AWL London, I'm the chair of the London branch, and we had a, a conference in January and we asked two heads of department to say what they were doing. And I found it really, really helpful to find out what they were doing. And I've asked them and they said that would be okay for me to share with you what their ideas. Would you like that? I would absolutely love that. Let's hear from uh, the, the heads of department who are at the chalk face doing the job. That'd be great. That's right. Well, we asked Adam Lamb, first of all, and you know Adam. Mm-hmm. I do indeed. Senor Cordero on Twitter. That's right. And just wonderful at the way he shares ideas freely. And in fact, it was the first time that I've met him. So anyone who hasn't met him, he's quite tall, actually. I wasn't expecting <laughs> to be looking up to him. <laughs> And with Adam, his approach was really using this as an opportunity to review what he is doing now, looking what's going on in primary, what's happening in the transition to secondary. And he said that they were already teaching phonics, but he would start embedding that more into his scheme of work, helping teachers to become more confident. And he referenced the NSELP schemes of work and the resources. And a lot of people have said to me how helpful the NSELP phonics work is. And I've seen those and I can see how, how helpful that is. The other thing I thought this was interesting, he said straight away, and I have to say this is what I would have done. That's why I'm saying it's interesting. I would have done this as well. He's changed the assessments for the current year seven and eight with the rubrics in English rather than in the target language. And that seems to me a very sensible thing to do. He's actually decided to include phonics testing already. And already he's looked at the criteria for the draft specifications and he's reviewing his criteria for internal exams. So in summary, his emphasis has been on phonics. So you mentioned the NSELP resources there for practicing phonics that have been popular amongst the the community. Are there any other resources you would recommend that listeners could uh, try out and and look into? Yes. I mean, I'm sure that people, as I I think I said earlier on, it's a natural thing that when you're introducing language, you show people the word and you talk about how you pronounce it. And we'll all have our own little ways of doing that, of using various colours and highlighting to do that. But there are some really good resources out there to help you, as well as the NSELP. Another publication which I would really recommend is brilliant publications, Sue Cave's Physical French Phonics. What she's done is she's put together a resource and she asked students as to what would help them to remember particular sounds. So for each individual sound, she's come up with a gesture which indicates that sound. For example, the French R sound, the R, she has a picture of somebody gargling in a bathroom, looking at themselves in the mirror and with their hand to their throat. So it means that if your student 
is not pronouncing the R. Eventually, you can just put your hand to your throat and they will realize that that is an indication they've got to go H. And there are others like that. It's really encouraging to see what people like Sue Cave are doing in primary level. And I think that obviously helps everybody that the sooner the students are comfortable with and enjoying pronouncing a language, the better. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful approach. I really like having that connection between the the physical gesture and the phonic sound or the attaching some sort of meaning to a physical movement, like you say, putting your hand to your throat to remind you of the uh, sound and what have you. I think that's really, really good. And it could just be used as a prompt. So if a student maybe has mispronounced something, you can just make the gesture yourself and that can be a reminder for the uh, for the student to pronounce something in the uh, in the way that you would like. I think that's uh, fantastic. That's the sort of thing I used to do when I was uh, teaching as well. So you talked about Adam, the amazing Adam Lamb. Who was the other head of department and what did uh, he or she recommend? Well, the other was the amazing Ollie Hopwood. And you might know that he's very, very interested in the issue about words and which words they should be and how many you can learn, this sort of thing. So he's done an extensive piece of research as to the nature of the words in the new specification. And in summary, his conclusion is that he's probably already teaching the vast majority of the words, even if they're not specifically listed in the textbook or in the exam specification. And he came up with something like 82 words at foundation and 167 at higher that might be new. When he looked at these words, he concluded that these were words which wouldn't necessarily typically match the interests of someone learning at key stage three. So he is not seeking to change what he's doing now in order to accommodate the key stage four. And overall, you know, he did express a concern that we risk teaching a lot less than we currently teach. And he is concerned about how students are going to respond. So for him, no major changes to key stage three. He'll continue to focus on the concrete, tangible words, which are easier to learn. The emphasis will be on speaking, communicating, building level appropriate sentences and exchanges and to train them to recognize cognates and close cognates. So, And he finally said he's going to cross the key stage four bridge when we need to. Okay, so we've heard a lot about the, the differences between the different exam boards. I'm sure you don't want to be partisan, but what advice would you give to teachers or heads of department in particular about which exam board they should choose? Firstly, I'd say don't feel you have to rush into making quick decisions on which exam board to use. We're expecting accreditation of all three by summer 2023. I have to warn you that the last time, 2016, it did take a long time. It took longer than that to do it. But I think they're hoping that the whole process started a little bit earlier. So we should be able to get that. So it should be that you're ready in spring 2024 to be able to tell your students what to expect. So you've got time to do it. You've got time to consider it. And does Ofqual give any advice for heads of department about which exam boards they should choose? Well, they wouldn't want to do that really, would they? But (laughs) I'm sure they'd want to reassure people that all are valid. And certainly 2016 iteration, Michelle Meadows at Ofqual gave a really good set of advice in a blog post that she she did. She made four points. And when I looked at it, I thought, well, actually, I think they're the same for now. First of all, she was saying there are variations between boards and it is for you to decide which one suits you. And I would say that this time there are going to probably be even more variations. So I think that's significant. She also made the point that different marks 
correspond to different grade boundaries according to the exam. And there are changes from year to year. So don't make it that just because you think an exam seems easier or students get more marks on it, that's not necessarily going to mean that they're going to get higher grades with that. So it's just really a warning about that and a reminder that exam boards do have to have a range of marks in order to discriminate between students. Her third point was to do with grades themselves because you know they will still be based on comparable outcomes. So whatever changes we make to our pedagogy, whatever changes there are to the exam, the outcome is going to be the same. And then lastly, she made the point that be wary that some people will sometimes think that multi-choice is definitely an easier option rather than open-ended. But of course, examiners do have to include what we're talking about, those distractors, not traps, but distractors, in order to make the test of comprehension valid and reliable. And an open-ended question doesn't need to have a distractor. So that could suit some people. So in the end, you decide. Awesome. This has been such a helpful and lovely conversation, um, Helen. Maybe to finish off, uh, for those people listening, what personal advice would you give to teachers, heads of departments, and maybe SLT as well in relation to getting everybody ready for the new GCSE, which is really just coming around the corner, isn't it? Yes. Well, remember, we still have for our current year 9, 10, 11, we've, we're still doing the current GCSE. So it's a little little while yet. I suppose in a way, you think about your own circumstances when you're looking at the specification, which specification will allow for better teaching and learning in our school with our circumstances over the next two to five years. Resources cost a lot of money. I think people may well be thinking, oh, we've got to throw away our resources, buy new ones. Well, it could be that you look at the specifications and see which ones match what you have already, particularly if you're happy with what you're doing. So that could be a a consideration. You might think which um, set of assessments gives the best experience for my pupils, which specification is the most easily managed. Definitely include other people in your decision making, as Adam Lamb said, so that you're in this together. It could be just which spec is the likely to mean I get the least flack from pupils or from colleagues, from parents (laughs) and managers. Obviously, it should be which one is the best for our pupils, which one is going to get for the best teaching and learning. That was what all this is about. All of the change was meant to be how can we get more students wanting to do key stage four languages and beyond. So in the end, that really is the touchstone. That's the most important thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. What a perfect way to finish our conversation. Helen, thank you so much for sharing your your expertise in this area, all the work you've been doing for ALL in relation to uh, letting people know about the changes, about the consultation, being able to work with quite tight deadlines. It's very much appreciated. And I'm sure that listeners will find this conversation fascinating. And if they want to get in touch with you, how would they do that? What would be the best avenues, would you say? Well, I would say probably Twitter is a, an easy way, at Helen Myers, otherwise via ALL, or I'm happy to share my email address, whatever you, you feel is best, Joe. But I'd also like to say thank you to you for inviting me to speak and all that you've done for the community to make sure that we're all speaking together and able to collaborate. So thank you. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. Thanks again. So that concludes this episode of Teach It Talks. We hope you found it informative and inspiring. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This will help more teachers discover our podcast. You can also join the conversation by using the hashtag Teach It Talks on social media. Thank you for listening and we'll be back soon with more Teach It Talks. It's been a pleasure to spend some quality time with you. Take care.